Thank you, Pastor Marvin. Appreciate that. We are going to jump back into our Story of Scripture series. We've got two weeks left, this Sunday and next Sunday, in the series. Um, and this has been a series that uh, we have been going over with the structure and the organization of uh, of our scriptures, of the Bible. So, as Pastor Marvin said, if you want to pull that out, you can turn to the table of contents, believe it or not. Uh, that's not often said, but turn to the table of contents and we'll get there in a second. Before I get there, um, I, I didn't want to give another duck update, but my sister said, people are invested in the ducks now. You have to give a duck update because I've been talking about these ducks who took up residence in my yard over the last few weeks. But I gave it in the first service and then I had people tell me it was too morbid of an update to start a service. Uh, but I have people talk, I have people putting stuff like this on my desk in my office. So I've had several emails about people's experiences with ducks in their yard and conversations. Um, so I'm just going to put it the way someone else suggested I put it this morning, and that is um, that there is a raccoon that is a little less hungry this morning um, from the ducks. Uh, you guys just don't like raccoons. You guys don't like raccoons. What's wrong with raccoons? The raccoons got to eat too. So that's the end of the duck updates. I don't have any redemption of that story. Um, so if you've got an idea of how to redeem the duck story, I guess sometimes we make our plans and... Raccoons have other plants, uh, but that's, that's the best I got. So let's get back into the story of scripture. That's more fun. The story of scripture. That's where we're at. Uh, we're talking about the structure of the Bible, how it's formed. We've been taking eight weeks to say, you know what? A lot of us have had one of these in our home. A lot of us uh, say that we base our life on this, that this is God's word, but a lot of us don't often know how it's even structured, organized. Uh, we've said the Bible is uh, 66 books, 1,189 chapters, but one story, one story that goes and runs through it. The way we've kind of taglined that story is God with us so that we could be with him. Um, that God has come to be with us so that we could be with him. And that's kind of the story of Scripture That the broken relationship caused by sin is solved by a covenant God. And the story of Scripture is really the revealing and the unpacking of the covenant that God has made with us. And the compassion, as we heard about last week, that God has when we break covenant. Um, and this is the God that we serve. So this is the story of Scripture. We've been using these numbers to talk about how the Scriptures are organized. I'm not going to make you clap them out, but hopefully you know them by now. 512-5512-41211. And here's where your table of contents comes into play. Uh, we've said that if you look at the structure of the Bible, the way the books are organized, you can use these numbers that kind of give you the large chunks of different genre of Scripture. Because your Bible is actually organized by genre, believe it or not. You may think it's completely chronological, but it's actually not. Uh, it does have a beginning and it does have an end, but in the middle of that, it's actually organized by genre. So we've had these numbers. And I'm going to, instead of telling you what the numbers mean, I'm going to ask what the numbers mean today. Uh, we're going to give you a little bit of a pop quiz, and I'm going to give you the chance 
to see if you can tell me what the numbers mean. I will tell you, I did this in Belmont a couple weeks ago, and they got 100% A+. So don't let me down Burlington, um, because apparently Pastor Brian and Justin and Andrew are doing a great job in Belmont. So let's, uh, let's give this a shot. All right, the first five is what? The books of the law or Torah. So if you're looking at your table of contents, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Those are the first five books of the Bible. They are called Torah, which means law. They are, it could be called the books of Moses. Um, but they could also be called the Pentateuch, those five books. And in those five books, you get the creation story. You get the big ideas of, of what God did, who God is, why there's pain in the world. Is there any hope? And God introduces his solution of covenant and his plan of redemption. All of that happens in those first five books of the Bible. All right, the next 12 is what? History. And we said history is also? Oh, I heard one person say it. You're kidding me. Only one person? Yes. History is also theology, right? We said that the way we learn who God is is by God's interaction with his people in history. That's the only way we can know who God is, by how he has acted and interacted with people in history. So history is also theology. So those next 12 books, beginning with Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and all the first and seconds, then Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, those are history books, okay? That's what's going on in God, with God's people. The next five is... Poetry, wisdom, literature, you can think about it uh, as how are God's people feeling in the midst of the history? Songs, prayers, poetry, wisdom, they're processing it. How are God's people feeling as they go through things like exile and correction and worship? Um, there's a lot of that that's in there. Psalms and Proverbs and, and, and the wisdom literature there. The next five is what? Major prophets, and the 12 is, and the reason they're major is, they're longer, and the reason they're minor is, they're short. You guys got it. All right, major prophets and minor prophets. Major prophets and minor prophets also happen within the 12. They're living within the history. And what they are is they are people who are calling God's people back to himself. They're saying, this is how God has called you to live. Repent, turn from the way God has called you, turn back to the way God has called you to live. That's the job of a prophet. So it's, they're living within the 12, living within the history, and they're calling people back to God. It's a very important role. So you got 5, 12, 5, 5, 12. Between that 12 and the 4, there's a gap. 400, you didn't even have to ask. Look at that. All right. 400 years between the last word spoken by God that we have recorded in what we call the Old Testament and the first word spoken by God that we have in what we call the New Testament, there is a 400-year gap. God didn't speak, but God was at work. Because what we learn is when we get into that next part, we're told that in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born of a virgin, right? So that gets into the four, which the four is what? Gospels. And the gospels are, name them. Matthew, Mark, look, that was extra credit. We didn't even go over that. There you go. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, the gospels are the story of the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
And that's what you have. You have four authors writing to four different audiences and recording the events in the birth, life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those are the Gospels. And then you have the one is Acts, which is history. And history is also one person again. It's going to be the same every time. History is always theology. All right. We're getting it. History is theology. We learn about God. The book of Acts, Pastor Brian was here a couple weeks ago. He talked about the fact the birth of the church and the Holy Spirit poured out by God for the empowerment of the mission and the ministry that God gave his church to carry out. And we still rely upon that Holy Spirit to fill us to do that mission and mission uh, ministry today. The 21 is... We're there today, so I'm going to go right past that. And the one is Revelation. It's apocalyptic. It's prophecy. It's yet to come. And next week is going to be the book of Revelation, and we're going to finish up our series next week. You did great. That's it. There you go. You did just as good as Belmont. So we're, we're doing well. That is the structure and of your Bible, my Lord. This morning, we're in the twenty-one. We're in the 21. The 21 are epistles or they're letters. And it's exactly what you think it is. It's a letter, just like you know what a letter is. In fact, almost every one contains a structure that will be similar to our letters. It starts out with who it's to. It starts with who it's from, with uh, some greetings, a body of content, usually some greetings at the end of, hey, say hello to so-and-so, uh, this and that, and then a signature. Very much like one of our letters, only it's in our Bible because God, under the inspiration of his Holy Spirit, placed it there so that we may understand what he would have to say to us. However, it is still a letter, and we understand it as that way. So the 21 of letters, they're written by five or six different authors, I say five or six because the book of Hebrews or the letter to the, the letter of Hebrews, we don't know who wrote it. The author is not identified. All the other ones identify the author. I say five or six because some people think it was written by Paul. So it was written by Paul. There were five. Um, written by someone else, we have six authors. We're not sure who wrote Hebrews. All written between 40 and 90 AD. So all within the lifetime of people who knew Christ and uh, were there. Um, they wrote to believers in different areas. Some of the letters, like Philemon and Timothy, are written to an individual. Others are written to a church, like the church at Corinth or the church at Ephesus. And others are general letters written to churches, like James is written to churches throughout a region. Uh, last thing I guess I'll mention might be interesting is they're not in chronological order. I don't know if you know that or not, but they're not. Uh, they're actually grouped by the author. So all of Paul's letters are together. All of John's letters, all of Peter's letters are together, uh, not necessarily in the chronological order uh, that they occur in. Um, that doesn't come into play too much because they're not really talking about the same thing. They're writing to different groups of people. So I want to give you three principles when you're reading the epistles or reading the letters this morning real quickly to keep in mind. And here's the first one. The first one is this. There are challenges when you are reading someone else's mail. Because that's what you're doing when you read an epistle. That's what you're doing when you read a letter. You are literally reading someone else's mail. You are reading a letter that was written not to you, but to someone else. And so that has dynamics in it. Like that changes things. You have to understand it because you're only hearing one side of a conversation, right? 
Many times you know what the answer is because it's written in the letter, but you don't know what the question was. So that can be, it's not that it doesn't mean it's not God's word. It is God's word. It's a genre of literature that God used to show us who he is. And just like you have to understand poetry as poetry, and you have to understand a, a prayer as a prayer, or a psalm as a psalm, and a proverb as a proverb, you read them in a certain way, and prose as prose, you have to read uh, epistles, you have to read a letter as a letter. Okay, I don't have the whole story. I've got part of the conversation. And yet God used this genre to communicate who he is and something important about him. And so we have to understand that they are letters and you're only hearing part of it. I also want to be clear, though, that in Scripture, I love to, uh, the, the statement of Pastor Alistair Begg, who says, the plain things are the main things and the main things are the plain things. There are things that are unclear, but not the main cardinal doctrines of Christianity and of Scripture. None of those are unclear. And they are reaffirmed in the epistles. Things like the divinity of Jesus Christ, the humanity of Jesus Christ, the, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, the coming again, the return of Christ, the, the salvation through Jesus. All these things are very clear, not unclear. These main teachings of Scripture are all clear. And so we need to be clear on that. The main things are the plain things, the plain things are the main things. But we also need to say that there are things when you're reading a letter that are less clear, that are less clear. And, and so what do we do? We hold them with humility and understanding. We approach them with humility. We recognize that there are things that you're going to come across in Scripture, even things uh, that are there, that good Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, Holy Spirit-filled, church-attending Christians disagree on. There are going to be some things, not main things, I'm not talking about cardinal doctrines, but there will be things that will come along that you'll read in the way another Christian might read differently. And because they read it differently, I don't write them off as someone who doesn't love Jesus. Say, Pastor, give me an example of that. I, I, used to, I think one of the easiest ones I use is, is baptism. You know, at Mount Hope, sometimes when we do a child dedication, you'll see us up here and I'll say, you know, we don't baptize children, we dedicate children, we baptize believers and when we baptize believers, we do it by full immersion in water. Now, my Presbyterian brothers and sisters, they baptize infants and they use less water. They, they sprinkle, right? Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to write them off and say, well, you're, you, don't love, you don't know Jesus. You're not a Christian. Because those are things that I believe good Christians sometimes disagree on. Are we in agreement on the core doctrines of who Jesus is, of who God is, of salvation through Jesus alone, of salvation only in his name, of the Trinity, of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of a coming again Lord that we are waiting for? All those things, yep. But there are some things that good Christians disagree on. You'll come across some of those in the letters. Well, you'll have to understand that. Let me, let me show you how this works. I mean, because you get half the conversation. If, if you came to my house and you saw a letter or a note on the counter that said, Dear Isaac, please take out the trash so that we don't have a repeat of next week, of last week, of last week. Love, Dad. I mean, some of the things in there are clear. You know the relationship that I have with Isaac. You know that he's my son, right? That's clear. Uh, you know he's being asked to take the trash out. That's clear. 
what happened last week? Don't you want to know? I mean, we fill in the gaps, though. So maybe you're thinking, oh, man, last week must have been a disaster. Isaac forgot to take out the trash, and the trash has been piling up, and the house is full of trash. That's what happened. Maybe. But maybe someone else took out the trash, and that caused a problem. Or maybe something completely different happened. You're only getting part of the conversation. And so there are some things, as you are reading the letters, that you'll come across that are less clear. We have to approach it with humility. We have to approach it understanding that there are things that good Christians will interpret and disagree on differently. We have to approach it understanding that we have to be very careful on things we will break fellowship over. Sometimes Christians are too quick to break fellowship over minor disagreements when we are in agreement with so much of the major things. And scripture, uh, I think, takes that breaking of fellowship very seriously, and we need to be careful about that. So uh, what do we do then? Well, that leads to the next couple principles. And the first one, the, the next principle is this. When reading someone else's mail, look for the principle behind the practice. Look for the principle behind the practice. Let's return to our uh, Isaac example, right? You came in, you read that letter, and what principle might be behind this little note? Well, you might say, honor your father and mother. Uh, to obey your father and mother. That's a, that's a principle behind the practice of maybe taking the trash out, right? Or maybe a principle of, hey, in a household, we're all going to contribute. Right? We all have a job to do. We all have a function in the household. That's a principle behind the practice. But you could, some people might come to that little note and it says, well, this means that anyone whose name is Isaac needs to take the trash out. <laughs> but you wouldn't necessarily, that's not what that note's saying, right? Or this means that anyone who is a son needs to take the trash out. Because look, you know, this is what it says. So if you're a son or you're the firstborn, maybe you do some research and you find out from the context that Isaac is my firstborn. And you say, well, the firstborn has to take the trash out. But that's not what that note is saying. It's not what it's intended to say. It's written to a specific person at a specific time for a specific reason. But we can look and say, what are the principles behind the practice that may apply to all people at all times that God would want us to learn. And to understand this, I want to use two words to help us understand this that I mentioned when we first started this series when I talked about the epistles. And there are two words. They're called orthodoxy and orthopraxy, okay? Remember I mentioned those way back, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So orthodoxy, they're made up of two Greek words. And you could probably guess the first one. Ortho, ortho means what? You go to an orthodontist for what reason? To straighten your teeth. I'm going to mention one I drastically got wrong in the first service. You go to an orthopedic surgeon for what? I'll tell you, it's not feet. I got that wrong in the first series. Orthopedic does muscles and backs, but the literal translation of orthopedic is straight child. 
uh, because they, it's literally straighten out a child, the back, the muscles, uh, to straighten that out. I was sure it was feet, and a quick Google search uh, proved me wrong, as well as many people in the first service that knew that I was wrong. Uh, but ortho is straight, right? You're looking to straighten something out. It's straight. It's true. Um, it is correct, right? That's, that's, what, that's what ortho is. And in this case, doxy, anyone know what doxy is? Dox? That's a harder one. Um, it's truth. That's what it's come to mean. It's praise or glory, actually. Orthodoxy literally means right praise or right glory. But it's come to mean, you know, the right sayings or the right belief about God. You're orthodox when your belief is in line with who God is. That's orthodoxy. Um, and so that's, that's right belief when you believe right. So orthopraxy is right what? Practice. You got it. There you go. Right practice. It's the right set of behaviors based on truth. If orthodoxy is right belief, orthopraxy is right behaviors. If orthodoxy is right thinking, then orthopraxy is right doing. You and I need both of them. And the authors of scripture so here's why I tell you all this, because when you come to a letter, when you come to Romans, Colossians, you're going to find both of these in all these letters. And oftentimes you're actually going to find the letter divided right by these two topics. You're going to find like a letter to the Romans and the whole letter to the Romans, which is 16 chapters, is front loaded with orthodoxy. It's all about what you should believe. It's all about what's true about God, what's true about humanity, what's true about sin, what's true about the life in the spirit. It's all, about, it's all about what you believe about these things until you get to chapter 12. In chapter 12, verse 1, it says this, I appeal to you, and say this next word with me, therefore, that's often the pivot point in the letter. When you see therefore, it's often the pivot point that's saying, because you believe this, you should do this. So chapter 12 starts out, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, tell me if this doesn't sound like practice, doing, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that you may, te by your testing, may discern what is the will of God, what is the good, acceptable, and perfect will. That's all doing, that's all practice, but what came before it was 11 chapters of what you believe. And now, therefore, live like this. Paul does it in Ephesus, in Ephesians as well, as he writes to the church in Ephesus. He, three chapters of, here's what's true about God. Pastor Marvin read chapter, part of chapter one this morning. Uh, and that was, here's all this beautiful stuff Paul says about who God is and who you are. Says it for three chapters. And then chapter four, verse one, it says, I, say this word with me, therefore, a prisoner for the ward, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Practice. So because you believe everything I said in these three chapters, now in chapters four, five, and six, here's how you're supposed to live. 
orthodoxy and orthopraxy. You say, Pastor, you are spending a lot of time on something that seems pretty simple. Here's why. Because you need to make sure you keep orthodoxy and orthopraxy in the right order. Don't get this order mixed up. You need to make sure that how you live is based on what you believe and not the other way around. Because it's very easy to get our beliefs based on our behavior rather than our behavior based on what we believe. It's very easy for us in our minds to say, I want to behave this way, so I'm going to believe this way. And scripture definitely puts it the other way around. Let me give you an example. So a a couple months ago, or a few months ago, Wendy and I uh, had to buy and look for a new car. And I don't know about you, but whenever I have to make a new purchase, a big purchase like this, I go into research mode. Anyone else? You go into research mode? So I go into, I mean, an inordinate, to be fair, probably unreasonable amount of research on what I'm going to purchase, right? And when you're doing that, the hardest thing to choose is what's the best option, right? Because there's so much information out there. And so you might say, well, you know, this one over here gets great reviews from the experts, but it had bad customer reviews like red. Or this one has all the options I like, but that one doesn't have as many options, but it has the one option I really want. Or this one, you know, I like the color, but that one is a year newer. And so what's the best choice? Like you're like, either one is very close and you don't know what the best choice is. You're not quite sure until what moment? Until you finally decide which one you're going to buy, right? Because once you make that decision, once you make that purchase, now that's the best car. That was the best one. That was the best choice. There was no other choice. And if someone comes up to you the next day and says, why'd you buy that car? Oh, let me tell you why I bought that car. It's the best choice. What's going on in that moment? Because a day ago, it could have gone either way. And if you're honest with yourself, if you had made a different decision, you'd be defending that decision. So what's going on there? Well, psychologists have a theory called cognitive dissonance is what's going on there. Cognitive dissonance is the fact that I need to bring my beliefs or my thoughts in line with my behavior. And when they're out of sync, I feel a tension in me to bring them into alignment. And so when I believe about myself that I'm a smart person, I wouldn't make unwise decisions. I wouldn't make a foolish decision. I would would always make the best decision. So therefore, the decision I made must be the best decision. So my belief is, well, this must be the best car because I chose it. And so I've resolved it. And so in a sense, my belief gets solidified by my behavior. This happens in other places too. Let me give you an example. Maybe, maybe you were in your younger days when perhaps you weren't married and you were dating, but you knew God and you knew God's truth about sexual ethics in relationships. And you knew that God said that the best way for, you know, in a relationship is that the physical intimacy, sexuality, sex together is reserved for a man and a woman in marriage and the covenant of marriage. 
So you knew that, and you wanted to obey God, and so in your dating relationship, you thought, we are not going to cross that line. But we will cross a whole lot of other lines before we get to that line. And you thought, well, hey, we didn't cross that line, so God must be okay with it. My belief is formed by my behavior because here's how I want to behave, so that's how I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe God must be okay with this. Fast forward, you're older, and now you have kids that are dating. And, th and, and they think, and they want to, you know, you, you think now all of a sudden that line is nowhere near where you thought it was when you were a teenager. No, 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 that's not right. In neither case did I consult an outside source. In neither case did I consult God's word and figure out what does God actually say about this. I just let my behavior determine my belief. And it happens so easily that we need to be careful in our lives that we are not getting orthopraxy, our practice, before our orthodoxy, what we believe, and letting our practice determine what we believe. Because it's very often how we operate. And if I operate like that, things like, it, it can really have disastrous results because I'm going to start doing things like choosing a church based on what it, what, if it affirms the way I want to behave rather than if it's actually saying truth of what God has to say. And so I, I may even start to change the way I believe based on it. Let me give you another example. Give you another example from, from the, again, the realm of sexual ethics. I think this plays out this way in, in recent days, especially. The Bible clearly teaches a consistency of sexual ethics throughout history of a man and a woman living in covenantal relationship as the relationship that God blesses for human flourishing, that God honors. That's been taught in scripture. It's been recognized for 2,000 years. That's how scripture's been interpreted. And yet lately, I, I've seen a number of, of people who would call themselves Christians and say they believe the Bible who say, no, I think the Bible is okay and God's okay with same-sex relationships. And I oftentimes will say, let me dig into that a little more because that wasn't always what they believed. I see this as a shift in their belief. And oftentimes, not always, but some of the times I've looked into it with certain people, it came about because of a person they know, they care about, they love, who was involved in a same-sex relationship. And they said, well, you know what? They're a great person and I really care about them. And so to resolve the cognitive dissonance, they would change the way they believe and say, well, the God must be okay with this. And this is what happened. This is why orthodoxy always has to come before orthopraxy, before practice. You have to start with what God says and then move to how we are supposed to live. And the epistles are filled with both of those. And you'll see the writers often say, look, not just here's a list of how to live, but Here's how, what we believe, and because we believe this, this is how we live. Let me give you just a couple quick examples in, in a couple of verses. One is from Hebrews chapter 10. In Hebrews chapter 10, uh, the writer, again, we don't know who it is, says this. For you had compassion, so he's writing to Christians. So the you is Christians as the audience, the recipients of this letter, right? 
For you, Christians, you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I need to say that again because you don't, don't skip past this too fast. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Why would anyone do that? Since you knew that, that sounds a lot like orthodoxy. Since you believe, since this is true, that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Why would anyone joyfully accept the plundering of their property? It could only be based on a belief. If I've got a belief that says my property is not the most important thing to me. It could only be based on the fact that my property, there's something else that I hold on to as a possession that can't be taken away. So those things in this world that can be taken away are less important to me. And I can hold them looser than I would otherwise if I didn't know and hold this belief in my life, right? So if you have an orthodox belief that heaven is really my reward, that God is my inheritance, that this is what's most important, then these other things, if it comes into play where maybe... I come into contrast or, or, or it comes into conflict with someone who needs to see the sacrificial love of Jesus lived out in front of them, that I'd be able to do that and hold these things loosely, especially because that's how Jesus lived. You want to talk orthodoxy? Jesus emptied himself, setting aside his divinity, allowed himself to be killed on a cross. You want to talk about plundering your property? And this is the God that we say we believe and we serve. And so it has to affect the way that we live. If I get this wrong, then my behavior would be never to allow anything, to never let go of my property, to never let go of anything I have. And the truth is my wrongful behavior will lead to wrong glory, to wrong praise. My malpractice will lead to bad praise of God because my life will not be being lived in line with who God is. One other example, Paul in Galatians um, confronts Peter when Peter had visited him. And he says this, Cephas is another name for Peter. He says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. For the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But, and listen to this, when I saw that their conduct, when I saw that their practice when I saw that their behavior was not in step with the truth of the gospel, with orthodoxy, with what we believe, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile, not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We're not going to get into the particular issue there. The point is, what Paul says is, Peter's behavior was not in line with what we say we believe, so I corrected him on it. Because his behavior was coming before and wasn't based on what we believe. So orthodoxy has to come before orthopraxy. 
What are the implications here? Let me just finally just a couple of them. Where your preference resulting in, it results in wrong practice, it manifests itself in wrong praise. And so when your preference results in wrong practice, it will manifest itself in wrong praise, wrong belief, wrong glory, wrong views of God. So now a question for you, where is your preference resulting in wrong practice that manifests wrong praise of God? It's a question all of us should wrestle with. Because if you don't get this right, if I don't get this right, you end up making God in your image instead of allowing yourself to be made in the image of God. If you come to the scriptures and it never challenges the way that you live, it's probably not because you have perfected yourself in the way you're living. It's probably not because you have become so Jesus-like that there is no longer anything in the Bible that would correct your behavior. More likely, I have read everything through the lens of my behavior, and I have allowed, stopped allowing it to change and affect and correct me. You have to be in the Word. You have to be listening to the Word of God. If you're not in the word, you just end up assuming you are doing what you are doing is what God would want you to do. You begin to talk like, I'm okay with this, so God must be okay with it as well. Or, you know, I'm, I don't like that person, so God must not like that person either. You make God in your image. I'd like to hold a grudge, so God's probably okay with me holding a grudge against that person. The rich young ruler, this happened in Jesus' ministry. He confronted people like this all the time. The rich young ruler came to Jesus. And he says, I keep all the law. And Jesus said, oh, he didn't even argue with him. He's like, oh, you keep all the law. That's great. That's not your problem. Your problem is you keep all your money. That's your problem. So give all your money away. And the scripture says he went away sad. Why? Because the God he served would never ask him to do that. Because he had created God in his image. And the God he made and served would never ask him to give away or joyfully accept the plundering of his possessions. He'd make God in his image. Finally, as we close, when reading someone else's mail, look for the principle behind the practice. And make sure to put the principle into practice. The epistles or reading of scripture is not simply for the gaining of knowledge. It is for understanding how we are to live. It's not just what I believe. It's how does what I believe affect how I live. If I believe that I have an eternal inheritance, then I can be generous with the things I have in this world. What I believe, if I believe that I have eternal life in God and that death is just a comma, not a period, an entrance into God's presence, then I can live living my life, giving it away for others and for the causes that God would call me to. If I live like this is all I have, do I really believe that God has given me life and life eternal? 
orthodoxy has to come before orthopraxy. I'm going to ask you, we're going to move to uh, our communion time as we close out the service. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come back. Did you guys get these on the way in? Yes? Okay. Um, lift your hand if you want to take communion and you didn't. Um, just lift your hand up and an usher will bring one to you. Keep your hand up high. I got a couple over here, Bill. Um, just uh, lift your hand up, keep your hand up, and they'll do that. Um, let me call, uh, the reason I'm moving quickly to communion and it seems like an a, a abrupt transition is because I want to come to this communion time looking at orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Because I want to look at a passage of scripture that we often look at at communion time. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And as we come to this communion time, as we look at that, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 is that passage you often hear me say or others say with communion where it says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night he betrayed. This language sounds familiar, right? We read that passage often from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, but that's orthodoxy. That's what we believe about communion. What we often don't read is the passage that comes before it and the passage that comes after it, which is all praxis. The passage that comes before it, I'm not going to read the entire thing, verses 17 to 22, but what Paul does in the passage that comes right before this talking about communion is he talks about the malpractice of the church at Corinth. The bad practices. Here's what was going on. They didn't come and have a little cup of juice and a little cracker. They had a huge meal together. That's what they would do once a week. They had a feast. They called it a love feast. And they would have this huge meal. But they lived in a culture that had very clear divisions. And those divisions were rich and poor. And, and, and they were outside the church. And Paul said, you're bringing those divisions in the church. You need to stop it. Because you come into the church and the rich people are eating all the food because the poor people haven't gotten off work yet. And the ones that are the most hungry and need the most food are the ones that are going away hungry. And the ones that need it the least are gorging themselves. And you guys are calling yourselves Christians and you're calling yourselves that you're having the Lord's Supper. He says, that's malpractice. That's malpractice. And he says, so that's when he says, for I passed on to you what I received from the Lord. <laughs> And on the night he was betrayed, the Lord took bread and said, this is my body. He took the cup and says, this is the new covenant of my blood. He says, that's orthodoxy, that God gave his body and shed his blood for all of you. Not for the rich, not so you could perpetuate your divisions, not so you could keep your little petty classes that exist outside the church. Jesus gave his life for you, and you're making a mockery of it. So he gives this orthodoxy, and then right after it, he gives what is orthopraxy. Here's how you should practice it. And again, I won't read the whole thing, but in verse 33, it says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give you directions when I come. Paul says, here's the right practice based on what you believe. What's the principle? The principle is a love for one another because of Christ's love for each of you. And so as we come to the little piece of bread, I want us to think about that piece of bread, open it up and take out that little piece of bread. And I want us to think about the body of Christ. That's what Paul was doing when he said, he put the bread actually before the cup, which 
actually reverse the order that we have in the Gospels that Jesus did it. But he did that because he really wanted to point out to them, this is the body of Christ and you're making a mockery of it in the way you're treating the body. And so as we hold this little piece of bread, would you take a moment and just think about our relationships with the body? Are we tempted to judge people instead of recognizing that we are not their judge? God is. Have we perpetuated classes or distinctions or divisions that exist outside the church and brought them into the church? Have I in my heart, in any way, in my words or thought or deed, brought division into the body of Christ and then sat in this room and taken communion from the Christ that gave his life for me? Lord, would you bring our behavior in line with our beliefs? about the body of Christ. And we ask you to do this as we take this bread together. As you flip that chalice and you open up that little piece of foil over the juice, I want you at this time to say, examine your own heart because in this passage, that's what Paul says, we're supposed to examine our hearts. So examine your heart. He says this cup is the new covenant of Christ's blood. Is there any place in my life where my behavior does not line up with my belief? Because that's called sin. When my behavior doesn't line up with what I say I believe, it's sin. I fall short. God forgives sin. That's how he deals with it. But it's our job to repent and bring it to him, ask and receive that forgiveness. So just take a moment and examine your heart. I do mine. Lord, forgive us for the places in our lives where we have failed to align our behavior with what we say we believe. We thank you that through the blood of Jesus Christ we have forgiveness and we receive it, not based on what we've done, but who he is and what he's done and what you've said. And we recognize that as we take this cup together in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Lord, would you help us to become a people who not simply hold a set of beliefs, not simply have a way of behaving and living, but Lord, we align the way that we live in how we believe in who you say you are and who you say we are. In Jesus' name. Would you stand and we'll close our service out with this service proclaiming that which we believe together about Jesus.